With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Listener. Do yourself a favor and check out Black Label Premium on the Apple Podcast app. You get access to all the premium content from my show that you can find on the Patreon, as well as premium content from all shows under the Black Label Premium banner. You're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of true crime content. And the best thing is, you can try our Black Label Premium for a week for free. If you like what you hear, you can keep supporting us. That's the Black Label Premium subscription on the Apple Podcasts app. All right, let's get on with it. Last time on Obscura, you heard part one of our story. In 1995, two eight-year-old girls, Melissa Russo and Julie Lejeune, had disappeared while playing in their neighborhood in the south of Belgium. The following month, 17-year-old Anne Marshall 
and her 19-year-old friend Ifia Lambrex disappeared on the north coast of the country while on a holiday with friends. There had been no sign of any of the girls, and their anguished families were without any answers. In mid-1996, 12-year-old Sabine Darden and 14-year-old Letitia Delhez were abducted a month apart. Thanks to observant members of the public who noted the license plate of a vehicle seen at one of the more recent abductions, police arrested unemployed electrician Mark Dutroux. They also arrested his wife Michelle and their accomplice Michelle Lelievre for the abduction of Sabine. Unbeknownst to the Belgian public, Mark had already been convicted of raping five young women in the 1980s and had served prison time, but had been released well before the end of his sentence. Free to wander the street and do as he pleased, Mark took up where he'd left off. Now, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. for less than a year when the National Gendarmerie in Charleroi received a tip from one of his tenants. The man told police that in 1992 he had been in a car with Mark when they saw two girls walking along the street. Mark suggested the men kidnap the girls, but his tenant refused, shocked at the suggestion. For some reason, police ignored the tip, but decided to take the tenant on as an informant. Mark subsequently offered his tenant between $3,000, $5,000 to kidnap young girls, but again police failed to question him directly. It was only when the gendarmerie received a tip that Mark was building a room in the cellar of his Marcinel home for the express purpose of holding children captive that officers conducted a visit to inspect the property. The idea just sounded preposterous, but when the officers attended, Mark welcomed them inside explaining that he was in the process of some simple plumbing renovations. When the officers returned to the station, they submitted a report documenting their visit, but this wasn't circulated to any other local police agencies. Despite the impression he'd given law enforcement, Mark wasn't trying his hand at DIY plumbing. As his tenant had correctly informed police, the convicted sex offender was constructing a carefully hidden soundproof concrete dungeon in the basement measuring only three by nine feet. Michelle painted the walls yellow, but the conditions in the bunker were primitive, with no running water or electricity. 
Mark had invested his energy into other features. This included designing a ventilation system to extract air from the tiny, windowless room in such a way that it would be near impossible for police sniffer dogs outside the property to detect the scent of anyone imprisoned inside. In 1995, Mark's tenant again approached police, substantiating the previous tip about the cellar dungeon, and adding that he believed Mark was planning to traffic young girls. Three more witnesses contacted the Charleroi Gendarmerie corroborating the trafficking claims and Mark's attempts to expand his network. The Gendarmerie noted this information down, adding it to their growing file on Mark. They now had a substantial amount of intelligence about what was occurring, in addition to Mark's previous criminal record. But nothing happened. Mark wasn't questioned, and there were no follow-up inspections of his home in Marcinelle. As far as Mark was concerned, everything was ready. On the 24th of June that year, Mark, Michel, and Liliev drove an hour and 20 minutes east of Charleroi to Liège. The trio spotted Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo playing, likely near their neighborhood flyover. The girls were bundled inside Mark's van and taken back to Marcinelle, where they were held captive. Mark repeatedly sexually abused both girls, while his wife Michelle videotaped the assaults. Around six weeks later in August, the National Gendarmerie in Charleroi finally decided to place Mark under surveillance for a five-month period. The operation was codenamed Othello, and the investigative team was led by Officer René Michaud, Ruchne Michaud. A CCTV camera was covertly installed opposite Mark's Marcinelle residence. The Gendarmerie suspected that Mark was involved in the disappearance of Julie and Melissa. They wanted to be sure to capture any unusual activity in the vicinity of his Mark's home. Whether Mark, Michelle, and Liliev were aware of the surveillance camera is unknown. If they did know, this didn't stop Mark and Liliev making the almost two-hour drive northwest from Charleroi to West End on the Belgian coastline on the evening of the 22nd of August. That afternoon, Mark took his Citroën to pick Leliev up from his mother's home, and the pair set off. By nightfall, the men were in Ostend, driving along the same street as the tram line. At the rear of one tram, Mark spotted Un Marshal and Ifia Lambrex, and decided to follow the tram to the stop at Ostend. Along the way, Mark became lost, but after driving around town for a brief period, soon spotted the teens who were hitchhiking out of town back to their accommodation. Mark pulled the Citroen over and picked up the young women, no doubt offering them a ride. With Anne and Ifya now in the back seat, Mark locked the doors. The girls knew something was wrong and started screaming, trying to open the doors in a panic. Mark pulled the vehicle over to the side of the road, where he and Leliever forced the girls to ingest Rohypnol and Haldol. As the drugs took effect, An and Ifi lapsed into unconsciousness. The men drove the young women back to Marcinelle, where Julie and Melissa were still imprisoned in the cellar dungeon. Given the lack of space to accommodate four people in his custom-built bunker, Mark took Anne and Ifi upstairs. The teens were chained to a bed and stripped to minimize the chance of them escaping when they regained consciousness. Mark repeatedly raped the young women. Now, if you're wondering why CCTV footage failed to alert police that Mark had brought Anne and Ifi to the property, this was because, unbelievably, the camera wasn't operational 24 hours a day. 
For some reason, police had decided only to have it switched on between the hours of 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Given that Anne and Ifu were abducted in the early hours of the morning, Mark and Leliev had plenty of time to drive the young women back to Marcinelle and bundle them inside the house before the camera switched on at 8 a.m. Leliev visited Mark several times after Anne and Ifye were imprisoned. He saw that the girls had since been moved down to the cellar dungeon, where they were chained. This is where they would remain, apart from when Mark brought Ifye out to perform household chores. By September 1995, Michelle was working as a schoolteacher. Around this time, she noticed that Anne and Ifye were drugged and taken from Marcinelle to Mark's property in the nearby suburb of Jumet where his 43-year-old friend Bernard Weinstein was living. Mark and Bernard wrapped the still-drugged On and Ifye in plastic and buried them in a hole on the property. Liliever had been abroad during this time in Slovakia. When he returned, Mark told him that some people had come and taken the young women away. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Mark, his mother had written to the National Gendarmerie in the weeks following Anne and Ifye's disappearance. She told them in no uncertain terms that she suspected her eldest son was keeping two teenage girls captive in one of his properties, saying, quote, I have known for a long time and with good cause my eldest temperament. What I do not know, and what all the people who know him fear, it's what he has in mind for the future. The gendarmerie held on to this explosive information. They decided not to share it with the Westend local police in the north of the country, where Anne and Ifyi had originally gone missing. Nor did officers feel it necessary to share with the local police in Liège, who were investigating Julie and Melissa's disappearance. Not long after Anne and Ifyi were taken to the house in Jumet, Bernard Weinstein found himself wanted by police on an unrelated vehicle theft, in which Mark had also been involved. By mid-November 1995, Mark was feeling the heat about the theft. He couldn't afford for police to uncover his activities thanks to the police attention Bernard was attracting. So Mark made a decision. He abducted Bernard and took him to the Marcinelle property. There he apparently decided to let Julie and Melissa wander about the house instead of staying imprisoned in the cellar dungeon. According to Mark, he fed Bernard food laced with rohypnol, then placed hose clamps around Bernard's testicles, torturing him until he told Mark where his money was hidden. On the 25th of November, 1995, Mark took Bernard from Marcinelle to one of his properties, where Bernard met the same fate as Anne and Ifyi. Mark killed his former accomplice by burying him in a hole in the garden. Paranoid that he would be recognized either by police or other associates of Bernard's, Mark shaved off his distinctive black mustache and cut his hair. But it didn't work. On the 6th of December, 1995, he was arrested by local police on charges of vehicle theft and was subsequently sentenced to a three-month stint in jail. According to Mark and Michelle, Julie and Melissa were still alive in the Marcinelle dungeon at the time. Mark asked Michelle to feed the girls and keep them alive while he served out his sentence. Michelle later told police she threw a bag of food inside the dungeon door, but claimed she was too scared to enter the concrete bunker. The tiny cell would have been freezing without any heat source during the frigid Belgian winter. A week after Mark's arrest for car theft, local police wanted to inspect his Marcinelle property to search for anything suspicious. However, the National Gendarmerie intervened. 
Officer Michaud insisted that as their branch had Mark under surveillance this entire time, it was essential that they, and not local police, execute the search so as not to compromise their investigation. Besides, the National Gendarmerie were the ones who had the full dossier on Mark. This included the letter from his mother and the previous tips from informants about his alleged involvement in child sex trafficking. Two searches of the Marcinelle property were conducted by police, one on the 13th of December and the other six days later. During the searches, investigators were accompanied by a locksmith. Officer Michaud found numerous videotapes which were seized, along with chains, lubricant, unlabeled bottles containing chloroform, and a speculum for use in gynecological procedures. At one stage during one of the searches, the locksmith alerted Michaud to the sounds of what he swore were children's voices coming from somewhere inside the house. The locksmith was adamant and told Michaud he wasn't leaving without a complete search of the entire property. Michaud didn't appreciate what he perceived as the locksmith's insubordination, sneering in response. Quote, Who is the police officer here, you or me? Michaud was confident that the children's voices were coming from the street outside. He was also of the view that there was nothing of note in the cellar, and so the search team left without fully inspecting the upstairs part of the property. But when the team returned to the police station, they didn't watch the videotapes, later claiming there was no VCR available. The tapes sat at the station, unseen and gathering dust. No one knew what was on them. Officer Michaud wrote a final report documenting that nothing of note had been found, and Operation Othello came to a close. It had been five months since Julie and Melissa were abducted, and almost four months since Anne and Ifya had last been seen alive. Several months passed, with no progress on any of the disappearances. The girls' families waited for news, any news, but none came. In February 1996, a prominent police inspector who was investigating Mark's vehicle smuggling ring in Charleroi was shot and killed at the police station where he worked. Unfortunately, the murderer was never identified. On the 20th of March 1996, Mark was released from prison, having completed his sentence for the vehicle theft conviction. According to Mark, when he returned home to Marcinelle, Julie and Melissa were still in the cellar dungeon. Barely alive, they lay amidst rubbish and toilet paper in a state of severe malnutrition. Mark claimed he carried the emaciated girls upstairs, bathed them, and attempted to feed them. Three days later, Mark purchased syringes and vitamin solutions from a local pharmacy. He injected Melissa with the concoction in an attempt to improve her condition, even injecting boiling water in an attempt to rehydrate her. According to Mark, he also administered mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to Melissa, but after a few hours, she passed away. Mark placed her tiny body in a trash bag, which he then stored in a freezer. Three days after Melissa died, Julie too succumbed to starvation and dehydration. Like he did with Melissa, Mark placed Julie's body in a trash bag in the freezer. The next day, Mark transported the girls' bodies to his property in sar la where he had buried Bernard Weinstein almost four months previously. Using an excavator, Mark dug a hole approximately three meters away from Bernard's remains and placed Julie and Melissa inside. In the interim, Officer Marshaw saw to it that some of the videotapes seized during the search of Mark's home the previous December, which still hadn't been examined by police, were returned to their prime suspect.
Two months later, on the 28th of May, Mark and Leliev drove an hour west to Tournai, where they again trawled the streets in Mark's van. When the men spotted Sabine Dardenne riding her bike to school, they seized the 12-year-old. Sabine was bundled into a metal trunk inside the van and forced to ingest cola laced with sedatives. Sabine later told DHNet, quote, Everything happened so fast. I was riding my bike quietly. I saw nothing coming. I was dizzy, but I wasn't sleeping. I realized that the vehicle was on the highway and that it was going fast. The men were speeding back to Marcinelle. When they arrived, Sabine was forced into the house where she was taken to the first floor and chained to a bed by her neck. After several days, Mark moved her down to the now-empty dungeon in the cellar, where one of the few comforts was a mattress. Sabine subsisted on cans of cold meatballs and tomato sauce, and bread that turned moldy so quickly it wasn't possibly fit for consumption. For the next 79 days, she was stripped of her clothes, regularly drugged, starved, and repeatedly raped by Mark, who told the petrified 12-year-old that she was his, quote, new wife. He also told her he was saving her life by protecting her from someone who wanted to hurt her and who had demanded money from her parents. In a cruel fabrication, Mark told Sabine that her parents knew where she was, but had simply abandoned her. Mark told Sabine to write letters to her parents, which, despite her horrific ordeal, she managed to do, also keeping a journal during her captivity. The tween told her family about her days, as if she were on holiday. Sabine later told the BBC, quote, I wished them all the happiness I could. According to him, my parents were mean. I still love them even so. I just wanted to go home. In one letter, Sabine wrote, quote, I promise to be less selfish and also lend my things. Be more helpful, be better tempered. I'm sure you'll find that I've changed. Please think long and hard about what I've said. I can't carry on like this for much longer. Sabine was of the understanding that Mark had posted the letters. Instead, he read them and used the information to pretend he'd spoken to her family on the phone, reporting back on things like how her pet dog was doing. On a calendar, Sabine marked the passing days. Symbols marked events to help her make sense of what was happening. Single crosses indicated days she saw Mark, while stars suggested days when she was raped. Two crosses meant the abuse was painful. Sabine often heard multiple men's voices on the other side of the dungeon door, but she only ever saw Mark, no one else. When he forced Sabine to perform oral sex, he would give her candy afterwards to, quote, take away the taste. Still, Sabine was determined to make it home, later telling the Guardian, quote, I'm very strong-willed. I know what I want, and I know what's important for me. I won't ever give up if that's what's at stake. In his cellar, I knew what was important for me was to see my family again, my parents, my sisters, so I didn't give up. I kept going. Two and a half months later, Mark and Leliever again set off in the van, driving just over an hour southeast to the village of Bertree. Here, the men abducted Leticia Delez as she walked home from the local swimming pool. They took her back to Marcinelle, where she joined Sabine in the dungeon. Like Sabine, Mark made Leticia believe that her parents didn't want to pay a ransom, and that he was there to protect her from a powerful man who intended to kill her. He instructed her that if she heard any voices other than his, she was to hide and remain silent, telling her, quote, All the harm I can do to you is make love to you. While she was imprisoned, Mark forced Leticia to take contraceptives and raped her three times. But Mark's days were numbered, 
Witnesses who had seen his white Renault van at the scene of Letitia's abduction had the presence of mind to note as much of the license plate as they could and contact the police. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Listener, Obscura is brought to you by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills, all in one place. Listener, I'll tell you, through Rocket Money, I realized I had two subscriptions I wasn't using, but had been paying for for over a year. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and chances are you're one of them. Like that Stars app just to watch one show, or that free gaming trial you never actually used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find your subscriptions for you. And for any you don't want to pay for anymore, just hit cancel, and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorize your expenses, so you can easily track your budget in real time, and also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash obscura. That's rocketmoney.com slash obscura. Rocketmoney.com slash obscura. Thanks, Rocket Money. It was only a matter of time before Letitia and Sabine were rescued. By the time of Mark's arrest for the abductions of Sabine and Letitia, he was worth a staggering six million Belgian francs, or $130,000 USD. Indeed, on the day he was arrested, he was carrying on his person 2,000 Slovak crowns in cash. It's not clear exactly how Mark came to accumulate such wealth, including his properties. However, the Flemish newspaper Noiseblad reported that he had committed health insurance fraud and then invested the money in the stock market. Other sources suggested that he acquired his assets through drug trafficking, MDMA, heroin and hash, and trafficking women. Only days before Mark's arrest, a seemingly unrelated grisly find had been made in the Lutru Postal Canal. 
a fisherman had come across a foot which was identified as belonging to a nightclub owner who was involved in organized crime in Charleroi. The man had not been seen since April 1995 when he disappeared, not long after revealing to an associate that he had damaging information about Mark. The rest of the man's body was never recovered. This only added to the many distressing questions about how Mark could have flown under the radar for so long, undetected. The rescue of Sabine and Letitia gave renewed hope to the families of Melissa, Julie, Anne, and Ifyi that their daughters too would be found alive. With Mark, 38-year-old Michelle, and 25-year-old Leliev in custody, investigators set to work thoroughly searching Mark's property in the Charleroi suburb of Marcinelle from top to bottom. In the cellar dungeon where the girls had been held captive, around 5,000 human hairs were found. On the 17th of August, 1996, Mark accompanied police to his property in Sar-la-Buissière, where investigators exhumed the bodies of Julie, Melissa, and one of Mark's former accomplices, Bernard Weinstein. Inside the garage bags, Julie and Melissa's naked bodies were curled up in the fetal position, with their arms and legs tied, their bodies covered in large bed sores. Melissa weighed around 16 kg, while Julie weighed around 13 kg. Both girls had starved to death. On the 22nd of August, both girls were farewelled in a joint private funeral in Liège in white coffins. Almost two weeks later, on the 3rd of September, police found the bodies of An and Ifyi. The teens were buried under a slab of concrete in a shed at Mark's house in Jumet. The bodies were still wrapped in plastic, and tragically, the autopsies revealed that the young women had been buried alive. Anne had been gagged, and the plastic around her head had been tied off with adhesive tape, likely resulting in her suffocation. Her wrists were also bound, like Julie and Melissa. Both Anne and Ifyi were severely malnourished, and this was believed to have been the cause of Ifyi's death. The powerful sedatives that Mark had used to drug the young women were the very same ones that he'd acquired to treat his non-existent insomnia during his previous imprisonment during the early 1990s. At first, Mark and Leliev denied murdering Anna Nifia, but later confessed. Across the entire country, Belgians were shocked and deeply saddened. How could this happen? How could people snatch girls off the street almost completely undetected? Given that the girls hadn't been killed immediately, could there have been a more concerted effort by police to search for them? The shockwaves across the country led to parents no longer allowing their daughters out to play with friends or walk anywhere unsupervised. But as the investigation progressed, things were about to take an even darker twist, if that was possible. Leliever soon stopped cooperating with the authorities. He told police that he had been threatened and couldn't risk saying any more. As more information emerged, the public learned that despite Mark being identified early on as a person of interest in the disappearance of Julie and Melissa, the convicted serial sex offender had never been questioned. But why? Was it gross incompetence on the part of the police? Or something more sinister involving corruption? Was Mark being protected by anyone in law enforcement or the Belgian legal system? According to Mark, the answer was yes. He maintained that he was just one lowly player in a large and complex child sex trafficking ring, which was run by Belgium's powerful elite. According to him, key figures in Belgian politics, justice, and business were the ones responsible for the operation of the network. Was this even true? 
or just a strategy by Mark to deflect attention away from himself and minimize his role. If it was true, the implications of the subsequent level of investigation required was beyond anything ordinary Belgians could have imagined. Could the Belgian legal and law enforcement systems responsible for administering justice be rotten to the core? Police didn't believe Mark's claims. It didn't help his cause that he refused to divulge any names or details of anyone else allegedly involved. It's at this stage of our story that a brief explainer of the Belgian legal system is necessary to help us understand the nuances of the Dutroux investigation and judicial proceedings as they unfolded. Like many European countries, Belgium has an investigative or inquisitorial court system. This means the court is far less removed from an investigation as an independent body in comparison to the adversarial model we see in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and other countries. In those cases, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But in the inquisitorial system, there is scope for judges, as investigating magistrates, to be actively involved in the actual investigation of a criminal matter, as well as presiding over the eventual trial. For criminal cases, in addition to the state prosecutor, a public attorney is also appointed. When news of Mark Dutroux's atrocities broke, Respected Judge Jean-Marc Connerat was appointed to head the investigation, including the matter of the murder of Mark's former accomplice Bernard Weinstein. You'll recall from part one of our episode last week that Belgium is a linguistically divided country. This extends to every aspect of Belgian life, including the court system. In a court based in the south of the country, French is used. In the north, courts use Flemish. But courts based in the nation's capital of Brussels use both. This quirk of Belgian administration has potential implications for the way witness statements are taken if a citizen isn't fluent in the language of another region. This will be relevant later in our story. As Judge Connerot's investigation into Mark's claims of a wider child sex trafficking ring progressed, a prominent and wealthy Belgian businessman was arrested on suspicion of conspiracy. 55-year-old Jean-Michel Neul was known as someone who had his fingers in lots of Belgium's commercial pies. Amongst his business interests, he owned a bar and had a reputation for being influential in the real estate sector. But outside the office, Nihul was said by many to be interested in more sinister pursuits. He not only had a criminal record for fraud, but was understood to have been regularly attending private sex parties since the early 1980s. The guest list at these functions only extended to the cream of the crop of the Belgium establishment. This included influential professionals from the medical, political, and legal worlds who let their hair down in privacy where sex workers were the entertainment. But over time, these parties evolved to not just include consenting women of age as the star attraction. According to German publication Der Spiegel, Rumors started circulating that underage young women and girls were being trafficked to attend the parties, solely for the pleasure of the much older and powerful male guests. The investigating team looked closer into Nihul's connections and the nature of his association with Mark. They had reason to believe that both men had plans to establish a child sex trafficking and importation ring focused on Slovakia and the Czech Republic, where the men were already dealing in stolen vehicles. Then there was the question of other unsolved disappearances around the country. It was said that big money was involved for the time, with the men offering $5,000 per girl who was brought to them. 
When Nihul was questioned, he readily admitted to hosting sex parties at exotic and private locations around Belgium, such as castles. But of course, the offer of this information came with a catch. Nihul was hoping that the charges against him would be dropped, but Judge Connerot was adamant that Nihul would not be immune from prosecution. Despite Judge Connerot's tenacity in having charges laid against as many of those alleged to have been involved as possible, the investigation hit a snag. The state prosecutor determined that the numerous allegations against Nihul regarding his association with Mark was much too complex for a jury to reach a sound verdict. As a result, the charges relating to vehicle theft and human trafficking were investigated separately by different law enforcement agencies. The fact that the charges all linked to the one bigger operation seemed to be lost on the state prosecutor. By separating the charges, it was harder to prove them. This played out when investigators conducted inquiries in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. While Mark had certainly traveled to both countries over the years, there was a complete lack of evidence that he'd done anything he could face prosecution over. In the meantime, though, internal inquiries were being made as to why the National Gendarmerie in Charleroi failed to act sooner, given the amount of incriminating intel it held regarding Mark. This culminated in a raid of the agency's Charleroi headquarters in September 1996. Eleven police officers who were said to have ties to Mark were arrested, including a detective, but the great strides that Judge Connerot was making wouldn't last. On the 21st of September, 1996, Judge Connerot attended a benefit for families of the victims and survivors, where he received a gift of a fountain pen as a small token of appreciation. The families were relieved to have someone with his expertise at the helm of the investigation, and hopefully he would swiftly bring all those responsible to account. But word soon got around that the judge had attended the benefit, and on the 15th of October, Connerot was removed from the case. It was determined that his attendance at the benefit could be perceived as a conflict of interest and affect his ability to remain impartial. Adding fuel to the fire were emerging claims that Judge Connerot was about to reveal the identities of powerful public officials who were believed to be involved with the alleged child sex trafficking network, which Connerot claimed was run by 55-year-old Neul. The girls' families and the Belgian public were outraged. To them, it appeared that Judge Connerot had been targeted over a trivial matter, and that the judiciary was acting only in the interests of those who were the focus of the investigation in order to prevent others being named publicly. Following his dismissal, Judge Connerot wrote to King Albert II of Belgium, expressing concern that his inquiries were being stymied because suspects were being protected. The judge's letter in part said, quote, This institution seems to acquire its authority and supremacy over sectors of the justice system by relying on a complex and secret modus operandi, that of the appropriation of certain key circuits of our institutions created and regulated by the law. This mafia-style criminal phenomenon is evidently not peculiar to Belgium, but it involves particular manifestations that are well-suited to this small country. We can imagine the obstacles that a judiciary inquiry will meet when investigating such facts. Numerous taboos, problems of mentality, and a lack of cultural reference on the issue in order to be able to become aware of or deal with such criminal phenomena 
taking advantage in Belgium of official reticence in terms of their acknowledgement, which favors or supports their occultation. The function of a criminal system of this sort is obviously to serve its fundamental purpose, the pursuance of particularly profitable illicit activities, such as money laundering, and to protect the legitimacy of its activities and the impunity of its agents. This indispensable function corresponds to the motive of criminal protection that assures the permanency of the incriminated system, a veritable knot, which my whole investigation has come up against. The judge wasn't the only public figure who felt the establishment was stifling the investigation. The Chicago Tribune quoted a Belgian senator as saying, quote, Stupidity by the police can't be the only explanation. It's a question of stupidity, incompetence, and corruption. Dutroux must be a friend of somebody important, or else he was being protected because he was known to be a police informant. Tension, outrage, and distrust of the government amongst the Belgian public was high in response to delays in the investigation and what was widely perceived as high-level corruption. This came to a head on the 20th of October, when the country came to a virtual standstill. Many people felt that Judge Conorat had been the only person capable of influence who was genuinely invested in uncovering the truth. Transport workers went on strike as around 300,000 people, including families of the victims and survivors, took to the streets of Brussels dressed in white. They waved white balloons and flowers, demonstrating in what was called the White March. Sabine Dardenne and Letitia Delez also attended, publicly thanking the crowd for their support. Firefighters joined in the mass peaceful protest by spraying their hoses at government buildings as symbolism of washing away the filth of corruption. With the public and the families demanding large-scale policing and judicial reform, Belgium was in a near state of revolution. At the demonstration, Melissa Russo's father, Gino, was quoted as saying that the removal of Judge Conorat was, quote, spitting on the graves of Julie and Melissa. To add insult to injury, Conorat's replacement, Jacques-Claude Van Espen, was an inexperienced magistrate. Following the protests, the then-Belgian Prime Minister reassured the public that sweeping reforms to the justice system were imminent. He made good on his promise, establishing an independent inquiry on the 24th of October 1996, known as the Dutroux Commission. The role of the inquiry was to scrutinize police and judicial procedures and protocols regarding the investigation into Mark. The scope of the inquiry also extended to the handling of the investigation by not only the former police chief, but Officer René Michaud. This was the officer who inspected Mark's Marcinelle home twice, but failed to recover Julie and Melissa, who were alive at the time on the other side of the dungeon door. As the inquiry progressed, it was revealed that four officers from the Charleroi Gendarmerie were in fact members of an alleged sect. The organization had come to police attention that same year. When their headquarters were raided in a large-scale operation, hundreds of documents, videotapes, black magic ritual implements, and human skulls were seized. A month later, in November of 1996, the body of a scrap metal dealer was exhumed. The man was an associate of Mark and was believed to have taken his own life the year before. According to the man's widow, he'd been tasked with destroying the vehicle in which Melissa and Julie had been abducted. The man feared he was going to die over his knowledge of the girl's disappearance. When an autopsy was finally performed after the exhumation, the man was found to have died from cyanide poisoning and the manner of death was changed to murder. The following month in December, a nightclub and brothel owner, 
who knew Mark and Nihul as clients of his businesses, contacted Julie Lejeune's father. The man was said to want to meet with Julie's dad to pass on information about Mark. However, two days before the scheduled meeting, the man was killed in a parking lot. Some reports say he was beaten to death, while others say he was shot. In January 1997, a key piece of evidence, Mark's house in Jumei where the bodies of Anne and Ifya were buried, was burnt down in a mysterious case of arson. By the spring of that year, there were more explosive revelations. Early in the investigation, Judge Connerot had asked for any other victims of Mark Dutroux and associates to come forward. Only six months later, five women and a transgender man had contacted police with their stories of trauma and abuse. The court anonymized these survivors by giving them each a code name of X and a number. The entire dossier of their evidence would go on to be called the X-Files. However, not all the witnesses would remain anonymous. The name of the witness known as X-1 was somehow leaked to the media. The woman, who went on the record and openly spoke to the press in the years that followed, was Regina Loof. Regina claimed that she met Mark Nihul and other powerful Belgian figures in the early 1980s as a young teenager, when her mother's boyfriend, who was also sexually abusing Regina at the time, started taking to her along to sex parties. Mark had supplied drugs for the underage girls present. Regina recalled that the events were well organized. They involved a lot of money changing hands, and male guests in attendance were videotaped as a form of blackmail to avoid them reporting the activities to the police. As Regina told investigators her story, a wealth of damning information she'd held onto for so many years came tumbling out. She named names, remembered addresses and details of specific locations. And she disclosed that the parties didn't just involve sexual abuse of girls and young women. On occasion, the guests' depraved pursuits had evolved to torture and murder. One instance in particular had stuck with Regina for the rest of her life, and she was unable to erase the disturbing images from her memory. Regina told investigators that she recalled being present at the scene of a murder in 1984, where a teenage girl was tortured and killed by a group of men, including not only 43-year-old Neul and 28-year-old Mark, but someone far more problematic. According to Regina, also present during the gruesome incident was Jean Van Espen, the man who was now the investigating judge on the Dutroux case. The teenager in question was 15-year-old Christine Van Hees, whose body was found in 1984 at a disused mushroom farm in Belgium. Christine had been bound and raped repeatedly before being doused in accelerant and set alight. According to investigative reporter Olenka Frankel, of the BBC, Christine frequented the Brussels ice rink during the same time period as Mark, who had moved on after being banned from the rink in Charleroi. Christine was also known to hang out at a Brussels radio station owned by Neul. The information Regina provided about Christine's murder and the crime scene was compelling and entirely unknown to anyone except the police and forensics. Her detailed descriptions conclusively proved she'd witnessed the terrible incident. It was impossible for her to provide the level of detail if she hadn't been present. From Regina's statement, it was apparent that there was indeed substance to Mark's claims that he was part of a bigger, organized pedophile network. And in a disturbing twist, it was also revealed that the judge who had oversight of the investigation into Christine's murder was none other than Judge Van Espen himself. And that's it for this episode. 
in what you may have thought was going to be a simple case of a serial killer has weaved itself into greater implications. Government conspiracy, child sex trafficking, and mafia-like killings potentially handed out by those who are meant to protect the public. A judge who sought justice for the victims both dead and alive, removed from his station. The protests of the White March demanding his reinstatement, his replacement Van Espen now tied to another murder, and that murder has connections to child sex trafficking. The spider's web grows more tangled with each passing moment. In the third and final part, we'll attempt to untangle this web and perhaps learn the brutal rapist and murderer Mark Dutroux's ultimate fate. Listener, if you're listening on the Patreon, then you'll receive the final part this Monday. But for now, thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.